In, oh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to 3CR Gardening Program. It's Stephen Ryan with you this morning in the studio here in uh, Collingwood, uh, ready for an hour and three quarters of hopefully fantastic um, gardening show. Remember this morning, we won't be able to take talkback, but we will be able to take text messages. So we will be able to answer any of your queries if you text us in a question. And I'll find the text number shortly. Uh, there it is. Text number is 0488 So that's 0488 So if you've got any gardening questions, text them through to us this morning. Um, you can talk to us in the studio. Ah, you can talk, of course, to Doug in the studio. I just can't get your uh, phone calls directly through to me. So if you want to talk to Doug uh, and he can then relay messages to me, uh, it's 94190155. So that's 94190155. And here we are on the first morning of Daylight Saving. So it meant I had to get up in the dark this morning. And with us this morning in the studio is... A.B. Bishop, who's helping me get myself sorted out here because I've never done this before. Um, we've also got Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill, uh, the beautiful garden in the Dandenongs. How are you this morning, Jeremy? Uh, hold on. I've got a problem here. I, ah, I missed you, Jeremy. I'm sorry I had the wrong button pressed. How are you this morning? I'm I'm good, Stephen. Oh, good. All right. Beautiful morning in the Dandenongs. Yeah. It was it was it all foggy this morning up your way? Because I no, left. No, in the we're, fog. If there's fog anywhere, we're above the fog. Ah, and, fair uh, enough. It's bright sunshine. We're yeah. enjoying the sun rising and the and the garden just looking glorious. Because I'm actually in the garden for a change. Oh well, what a nice thought. Yes, and I hope to be uh, out amongst my plants as. Uh, uh, as a thing this afternoon as well, once I get back here from the studio. So we all get calls coming through shortly, Jeremy. Um, we're supposed to have somebody else on board, but we haven't heard from yet. So let's hope that uh, she can get through. But it might be between you, me and AB this morning. Um, I've got a couple of announcements that probably need to be made. So I might do those first up and hopefully everybody's listening. I'll redo these later in the morning as well for those who've slept in. Uh, I have been yesterday informed, uh, and it's probably been a little while since they changed the dates, but the Yarra Valley Rare Plant Fair, uh, which was supposed to come up in October, has had its dates changed. So if anybody's thinking of going for the to the Yarra Valley uh, Rare Plant Fair, um, the Larkmans have changed the date to the 20th and 21st of November. So let's hope that um, COVID allowing, those dates will stick because uh, we do need some events. We need people to be able to get out, buy plants, see growers, do all those things that you can do at one of those events. So let's hope that goes ahead. So that's the 20th and 21st uh, of November, the Yarra Valley Rare Plant Fair. Look it up on the net and you'll be able to find all the details, but I just wanted you to be aware that it was in fact uh, a date change going on. So, um, and another thing that I wanted to mention uh, was, in fact, that um, Australian Studying Abroad, the company that I work for as a tour company, uh, they have a tour coming up, which they've uh, organised for me to do. Uh, and it's not till March, but I want people to uh, book and lock it into their diary if they're stir crazy and want to get out and look at some gardens. Uh, we're going to have a garden tour of the Macedon Ranges in the autumn. Uh, I did this last year and it was a rip-roaring success. So um, 
uh, I would recommend it to anybody. So uh, you can either go into my website and the tours are in there, or you can go to the Australian Studying Abroad website and look up the tours. And it's a four-day tour of Macedon and surrounds. And we have it booked for the 26th to the 29th of April. And we're going to visit some amazing gardens, some of which are rarely, if ever, open to the public. Um, we're going to have a special dinner at um, Midnight, Midnight Starling in Kyneton, uh, which is an absolutely wonderful restaurant. Um, and we'll be, you know, having wonderful morning teas and lunches and all that sort of thing all over. Uh, David Glenn's uh, garden is going to be one of the featured gardens on the tour, as is Simon Rickart's garden in Trentham. So there's a whole range of Mount Macedon gardens. Gardens. We're also going to um, Belinda Vale to see uh, Lady Clark's garden and her daughter's garden, which is nearby but a completely separate entity, uh, Sam Crawford's garden. And she's a landscape designer of some merit and her garden is fantastic. So we'll be visiting all those different gardens. So, in fact, if you do want to go, please book. Um, We've got a few bookings already, but we need a few more to fill out the tour, and that's Australian Studying Abroad. So go into their website or go in and have a look at the tours on my website, and you can then get a link back to the company. And we'd love to see a few of you come along on our um, Daring Do tours, and hopefully by next March everything will be able to be done, which would be fantastic. Um, Jeremy, is there anything happening up your way that we should know about? <laughs> Um, lots of things happening and lots of things not happening. Yeah, happening. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, we're, we're, we, we stagger along, I guess. We're, we're, um, we're busy, busy in the garden. That's yeah. the main thing. Yes. Well, of course, um, it's spring. And what else do you expect? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're, except that we've been tackling jobs which normally we wouldn't tackle, mm. um, cutting back hedges and whatever, uh, which we've been doing right up and, until uh, a few days ago. Yeah. Um, Normally we'd tackle one or two jobs um, a year and not leave too many holes. This 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 winter we've just gone for it. Yeah. Well, look, I think I think a lot of us gardeners that have gardens that the public come to visit have bit the bullet this year. I've done exactly the same in my own garden. Uh, there was an area of the garden that it was all right. It was there, and you know there was some vaguely interesting plants in it. But it was a sort of part of the garden that you sort of tended to ignore, and and it had just sort of become this sort of big mass of shrubbery, um, most of which wasn't overly exciting when I look back on on it and why did I plant those particular things. So I actually clear felled. Uh, you know, in, 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 I have to say, in my case, clear felling a section of garden because I'm working on only about an acre is not a huge area. But there was, you know, a big overgrown buddleia and there was a, a poor golden oak that the possums had basically destroyed. Um, so there was a, a few things there that just had to come out. So I had a clean slate and I've been replanting with some seriously exciting new plants, which... I didn't have anywhere to put before. So it is, it's good fun when you do something like that and you create a gap. Absolutely. Um, uh, in our case, we've been cutting back hedges. Normally we'd cut back one a year, but we cut back four this year. Oh, goodness. And I mean, when I say cut back, I mean seriously, seriously cut back to the old wood. All oh, right. And so they, they look devastated at the moment. Um, we're, we're looking, in fact, the copper beech hedge beside our warm borders, we yeah. decided to tackle that one this year. Ooh. And uh, so the top came off and one face came off. And uh, so we'd left one face um, uh, untouched. That's leafing out at the moment. 
but it's very, very exciting in that we're watching little buds bursting out of the old wood, out of the trunks of the trees almost. Oh, uh, fantastic. Uh, where we've cut back. So that, 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 that's, that's um, uh, well, comforting. Yes, it <laughs> bodes well. Yes. Of, yeah, clear felling, another section of the garden, um, Oh, some rubbish old junipers were getting away and things which were meant to be dwarf had turned into three metre high <laughs> junipers. Oh, dear, and yes. So we, uh, I chopped back one of those and I knew that there was a uh, buckeye back behind. Oh, to my amazement, the buckeye has actually grown up and that's looking magnificent. And I'm oh, fantastic. It's Aeschylus and I always just get this slightly wrong, but I think it's Parva flora. Uh it's, yes, I think it is parvaflora, I think. Parvaflora, yeah. parvafolia. A, I think it's parvaflora. Yeah, it's a lovely thing. Oh, stunning. I saw one at um, Wisley um, many years ago, and it was the most unearthly thing in the garden. Mm. And um, raced down to Don Tees and bought a couple um, uh, as soon as I got back and planted them. And this is one of those, and yeah. now it's up three metres high. Yeah. yeah, it's a great plant, and it flowers at a really useful time of the year, I find. Yeah, uh, late spring, early summer. Yeah, just when you've got that sort of vague gap when the spring things have sort of gone over uh, and you're waiting for the summer perennials to take their place, um, out comes the buckeye. So it's, But I have to warn people if they decide they want to rush out and get one, how suckery is yours? Quite suckery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have no issue with a plant that suckers, but you do have to be aware that it does and, and take uh, remedial action where needs be. Well, I uh, I was talking about it to Peter Tees. Uh, as soon as we I removed the juniper, I, I, I mentioned it to Peter Tees, and that was his first question: How many suckers has it? Yeah, but that was probably because <laughs> he wanted look, to. Look, I rang him. I said, "Plenty of suckers." Yeah, he probably wanted to so, borrow a few. <laughs> yes, he does want to borrow. A few. <laughs> yes, yes, doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but yeah, it's a great plant. Uh, now we've got a question that's come in, and this is one that might be just up your alley, actually, um, Jeremy. Uh, Ruth from Bentley uh, would like to know the growing conditions for Ito peonies. Uh, she has lost one and would like to try another. What would you say to somebody in Melbourne if they wanted to um, uh, have a crack at an Ito? I'm just wondering why you lose one. I, yeah. I suspect that the uh, poor drainage is, uh, is the most, is the likely problem. Yeah. Um, otherwise, they're pretty straightforward. I'm, I'm finding them very vigorous. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've I'm certainly found them, them so in my garden. Uh, what's your attitude though to cold chilling? Do they need a? Do you think they would need a cold chill like a, a normal herbaceous peony, or no, are they more like their their other parent? No, they follow the tree peonies in that they don't need cold chilling, so you can grow them on the beach. Yeah, fantastic. And certainly with tree peonies, uh, there used to be uh, a specialist tree penny nursery down at uh, Oliver's Hill, next yeah. to Frankston, and, and <laughs> on the beach. Yeah. Uh, no chilling there. Yeah, well, exactly. And the itos follow the tree peonies. Mm. Now, I've always felt that peonies as a group, if you want to grow them well, uh, I'll run through my three or four criteria, and you can you can uh, correct me if you think I need correcting, Jeremy, because you certainly yep. grow a lot more tree or a lot more peonies than I do. But I would say that peonies need a fairly open, sunny aspect. They need good drainage. They don't like a lot of root competition from large trees and things around them. Uh, and if you had an unused vegetable garden, that would probably be ideal conditions because if you can grow a good cabbage, you can probably grow a good peony. 
pretty well spot on. Good. Good. I'm glad you agree. Uh, so they do like that sort of rich, fatty soil. Yep. Um, uh, and, uh, yes, veggie garden conditions would be ideal, I would have thought, for your average peony. Um, and most of us have got a life, so we're not going to plant herbaceous peonies in Melbourne and then go around putting ice blocks on them all winter. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think um, uh, they're, they're okay around Wandon and and Sylvan, but yeah. uh, not in Melbourne. No, no. So you know, we'll always get somebody who'll ring us up and say, "Oh, but I've got one in flower." But that tends to be the exception, not the rule, does it not? One or two varieties seem to need less chilling, and I've never figured out which ones they are. Yeah, well, and that could be the case too, where there's just some that don't. Because there are some wild herbaceous peonies that grow in fairly low altitudes on some of the Greek islands and things like that, and they can't generally get much of a chill, I wouldn't have thought. I, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. And yeah. as you say that, yes, we've got one of them growing here, but, yeah. uh, but I'm <laughs> it's quite happy here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, there you go. Um, so, yeah, so that was our first question. So I would suggest to people if you um, would like to join us this morning, because Jeremy and I just don't want to chat to us amongst ourselves all morning, uh, do send us in um, uh, a question via text uh, or you can ring in and have a chat on uh, on the outside line. And the outside line number is 94190155. And the text number is 0488-809-855. So do come along and join us on uh, the program. And uh, if you're interested too, we've got some other... Uh, announcements we can make. Open Gardens Victoria is doing an online workshop um, and it's Bush Food for Beginners. Uh, does that mean you start with mountain pepper? I don't know. Um, anyhow, it's Wednesday the 13th of October from 7.30 to 8.30, I'm assuming in the evening, um, with Karen Sutherland uh, from Edible Eden Designs. It's $30 and... Um, and she's going to talk about um, growing bush tucker in Melbourne. So if you've got an interest in that particular group of uh, uh, plants, uh, and a lot of people do, um, then why not indeed? So, um, so just to run through that again, Open Gardens Victoria online workshop, uh, Wednesday the 13th of October, 7.30 to 8.30 with Karen Sutherland. Ah, Chloe, uh, our, our second guest has come online and I can see her cheery, smiley face looking quite Hello. pleased that she's actually got here at last. Chloe, <laughs> welcome. Hello. Thank you, Stephen. I'm so sorry there. I do not know what planet my internet was on this uh, morning, but it wasn't this one. Uh, I have to say I'm of an age, and I think Jeremy would agree with this, that the whole technological thing has almost gone past us. And so we're terribly nervous about actually even getting involved so me sitting in the studio here uh, with my computer and all of the 3CR computing things around me um, uh, is somewhat daunting, I have to say. But anyhow, I've got the backup of AB in the background. So she's been helping me this morning and she's got some plants in this morning we might talk about as well, which would be Ooh, fantastic. Now, Chloe, since you've just come on board, have you got anything um, that you would like to um, um Tell us about any ongoing events that are coming up. Any... Well, 
You know what? I reckon the last time I was on here was with AB and I was talking about how I was going to put together a recycled window glass house for our backyard. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Yep, and it's finished. Oh, so fantastic. Just in time for your tomatoes. <laughs> Sorry? Just in time for your tomatoes. I know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so it's been finished for probably about a month now, I think. Um, it's only small. It's about two metres by like one and a half metres. Yeah. Um, so it'll be far too small. Yeah. By the time you put a few things in there, you'll go, oh, if we'd only made I it know. bigger. <laughs> oh, dear. So, oh, well, that's really exciting. So you've used yeah. all recycled materials. Yeah, all recycled windows. We didn't pay a cent for any of the windows, um, window frames themselves. Most of them were from locals or hard rubbish that we spotted. Um, a lot of locals, actually, just on our local freeze, free you know, Facebook group. Oh, and fantastic. Yeah, it's come out really good. So. Yeah, well, I was going to say, aesthetically, how does it look? It's super cute. Cute yeah. little white. It's got some stained glass window features. Um, yeah, very yeah. cute. Yeah, because I'm all about aesthetics. I don't net my tr- fruit trees because I don't want them to look dreadful in the garden. It means all the birds get all the fruit. But, you know. I, I, <laughs> well, happy birds. Yeah, well, exactly. And for me, yes, it's all about aesthetics. So uh, I don't have any objection to recycle things, but they've got to look cute. <laughs> yeah, no, I painted it all white. And, yeah. Um, it's actually, it, it, you open our curtain in the morning and it's the first thing you sort of spot in the garden nestled among the plants, so it's quite nice. <laughs> now, I believe if people want to see your greenhouse, uh, they could go to Insta at Been There, Dug That, uh, mm-hmm. and you might have some images up there where people can have a look at your greenhouse. <laughs> yes, it does feature rather heavily in the most recent images. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's always nice to be able to see these things because you sort of can, you make a mental picture of what you think you're going to see and then often the yeah. the actual thing is quite different so yeah so insta at uh been there dug that uh all one word i assume um, yes all one word and yeah. of course it's been like the one that you eat yeah so yeah so not <laughs> b double e but b e a n been there done dug that so go in and have a look at that um and actually that does remind me things on the net i probably should uh, throw in my own little plug here uh and let people know that my youtube channel has just gone to the point where it's monetizing. Now, I think my latest amount was $10.35. Uh, so I'm not going to get rich out of this in a hurry, but it means that we've got enough subscribers and we've had enough viewed hours for the YouTube channel to then by YouTube be um, monetized. So it's building quite well. So anybody who hasn't come on board, we have a video that goes up every Friday um, and it could be a plant profile. It might be a uh, general landscape hint. It might be a garden visit, although we're not doing a lot of those at the moment with lockdowns and other sundry things. Uh, or it might be something practical. We've done one on uh, how to use botanical Latin. We've done one on how to grow plants from cuttings. So there's a few sort of practical ones in there as well. So if you're looking for it on YouTube, it's the Horty, H-O-R-T-I dash culturalists. So the Horty culturalists. So go in and have a look. And obviously from my perspective, you'll make me rich and famous if you subscribe uh, and share and like and press the alert button so that it reminds you every Friday when the video comes up. And of course, watch the videos. So yeah, so that's been a lot of fun during lockdown, trying to get my offsider and I together via technology because we haven't been able to meet in person for the last couple of months. Uh, So he either does the links at his place, sends them to me, and then I fill in the bits in between, or I do my bit, send it to him, and then he tops and tails it uh, once he sees what I've said. And it's 
all a bit of fun and games, but anyhow, we're getting there. We're getting there. I know. It's amazing how creative we're getting, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and how much technology we're learning about. I mean, I didn't know about WeTransfer until quite recently. <laughs> so, so there's another, another new thing that I'm learning about. So goodness me. And I thought I was too old for all that. All right. Now, uh, just to remind people, uh, if you want to ring in and talk to Doug off, off the air, it's 94190155. And the text number, which is really important if you want to get your questions across to us, is 0488809855. All right. Well, now, Chloe, have you got any plants that you wanted to talk about this morning? Because I'll start off with oh. you if you've got anything. Um, well, I, I did think what a crazy, ridiculous opportunity for me to actually ask two experts some, some, fun, some fun things. <laughs> I <All> know. Right. <laughs> well, given my new fandangled glass house, which do remember is small. Yeah. I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to try? And it's it's a bit of a misnomer that my glass house is actually like hot, yeah. uh, not not hot. Is it's full of sun? It's actually yeah. quite shady at the back, so it's almost going to be like a warm shade house. All right, yeah, um, got, the, got the sense of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the seedlings I can stick at the very front, and they get sun. Yeah, enough sun for seedlings, but it's almost like a warm shade house, really. Um, so I'm looking for interesting things that I could grow in there. I mean, the most I can think of is something like a true curry leaf plant that doesn't die in Melbourne's cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought, well, hang on, these guys are going to be able to suggest some fun things to play with. What do you got? <laughs> well, I don't know, Chloe. Are, are you looking mainly for edibles in your greenhouse? Or are we or are we talking about tropicals or something? Look, I, I, I've got a few dendrobiums in there at the moment. I know they don't need to be, but they're happy as Larry. Yeah, and they um, probably would be. Um, yeah. I mean, if you if you wanted edibles, well, then you could go for uh, ginger and galgalel and things of like course. that and have a, a, cra- a crack at And AB's held up a piece of paper and said, why not try a coffee plant? Um, well, that's an idea. Cheers <laughs> to that. Yeah, 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 well, we all need coffee. I mean, I don't know whether you'll ever crop enough of it to actually find that you can uh, you can make your morning coffee from it, but it could be fun. You know, it could be fun actually. Yeah, I saw. You know what? I saw a coffee be a coffee plant being sold sold at a plant a plant fair yeah. back in those days when we could go to public events, um, <laughs> and they were selling it as an indoor plant. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So you, go, you know, you can that, buy them. yeah. So that could be. I mean, I don't think your greenhouse is going to be big enough to have a crack at bananas. No, uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> I, why I stipulated small. Yes, small. yeah, yeah. So I don't think I'd go there. Um, but if it stays warm enough, there's there's probably quite a range of subtropically things that you might just be able to push the barrier with uh, in Melbourne. So it could be fun to have a crack at some of those sort of things. I mean, there's certainly plenty of uh, ornamental plants. I mean, it would probably be a great habitat in the back of your greenhouse to grow a hoya up the wall or something like that. And there's a lot of different Hoyas out there apart from the old grandmotherly pinky one that everybody (laughs) knows. And I've actually got my grandmother's Hoya on my front veranda and it's not my favourite plant, but it's my grandmother's, so I look after it. So there you go. So there's a couple of ideas. You got any Mm. sense of things that might work, Jeremy? Well, in our case, um, we've used uh, succulents. (laughs) Yeah. very, very perverse, but we, otherwise we can't grow succulents in the dandenong, so echeverias. Right. I've, I've had a, 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 a put together a collection of echeverias uh, a few years back, and uh, they uh, nearly all died during the winter. They, they, we get a bit of sleet and they start to rot, and that's the end of them. Yeah. Um, so we, um, uh, we put up a glass house oh, some years back, and 
I filled it with succulents. So it's something I've always wanted to grow. <laughs> yeah, well, see, I'm waiting to become rich and famous, and then I'm going to pl- uh, build the giant heated conservatory. Uh, uh, and then I'll be able to swing through my trees like Tarzan uh, and go out and pick a, a hand of bananas whenever I want one. So, you know, that's, that's the long-term aim. <laughs> um, now, I've got a couple of things that have come in that we need to deal with. I don't know whether either of you will be able to help with this. I certainly can't, but uh, Jimmy from Heathmont would like to know if anybody in the panel can recommend a good arborist, uh, not just somebody who's going to cut down trees. Now, I'd, I've got some good arborists up around my area, but uh, and I would recommend them to my local people, but I don't really know many arborists around Melbourne. Um, I mean, certainly if you rang somebody, you'd need to chat them through their qualifications and what have you and make sure that they're somebody that uh, uh, is a qualified arborist. Uh, hmm. But do either of you know anybody in town for people who are looking for an arborist? It's, really, it's a really interesting question, actually, and, and something which crops up around Melbourne. And all I can suggest is that uh, people go to their um, local notice board, the, the local newspaper, uh, whatever's available, and and uh, look and and just make a list of arborists, and um, speak to two or three of them, and um, get uh, and and, uh, and talk to customers who have actually had experience with them. Because mm. I, I don't know of any other profession with uh, how can I put this such a wide range of approach <laughs> yeah well there are the tree hacker downer types mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. and you don't know you don't know until you're halfway through a job so you, you need to you need to speak to some people who've had some experience with a particular arborist yeah well exactly and and you know i always recommend the ones that i've had work with in my area uh, that I know are reliable, trustworthy, uh, and don't just come in to cut down a tree because you think the tree might be dangerous and may not be dangerous. Uh, they'll go in and they'll assess the tree and they'll say whether they think it needs work or not instead of just saying, oh, here's a job and we can get this tree down because uh, there's plenty of tree loppers out there that would do that. Uh, so you do need people who have a feel for trees. Uh, I, I, I think we've used about five different arborists over the years. Yeah. And- Five completely different approaches. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does happen uh, like that. One or two I can recommend and one or two I can't. Oh, dear. Uh, all right. Well, we can't go much further with that, but that sounds reasonable. <laughs> a listener's kindly rung in, Chloe, and suggested mm-hmm. that you might like to try a vanilla bean in your glass house. Oh, and you know what? That was one of the ones I was um, looking up. I found um, Diggers actually is going to have some in stock in October, it says. So oh. I was... <laughs> Rubbing my hands with glee when now, I saw that. You do know that vanilla takes quite some time for the plants <laughs> to get big enough to to start forming pods. Then you have to hand pollinate uh, yep. because we don't have the right moth. Yeah. So then you've got to hand pollinate. I've seen it growing in Madagascar and it's quite a, a trial. Um, and it does need a little bit of shade. So they what they mm-hmm. do is they grow it in sort of cleared forest where they leave odd trees and they grow them up the trunks of the trees but they allow a little bit more light through than they would if it was intact forest Um, and they tie them up into the trees and what have you and then they go around and hand pollinate them but it's something like four hundred dollars a kilo for uh, vanilla pods (laughs) uh, the last time I checked Um, uh, it could be a get rich scheme (laughs) yeah yeah exactly yes you know who knows Uh, in fact in Madagascar they've become so valuable now um, that um, they're picking them too uh, unripened 
because bandits come in and clean out their um, their vanilla plantations uh, and steal all their vanilla pods. And so the quality of vanilla in Madagascar is dropping because they're not allowing it to stay on the vines long enough to ripen naturally. And so they haven't got A-grade vanilla coming out of Madagascar anymore because of the bandits coming in and stealing their vanilla crops. And if you go yes. to one of the processing plants, it has razor wire around the, the fence <laughs> and people with guns at the gate um, uh, and you have to make an appointment if you want to go in and buy your vanilla. It's like a major drug deal or something is <laughs> the way I work it out. It's bizarre. It's truly bizarre. So there you go. So it's become one of those must-have things. So there you go, Chloe. You need to oh get a, a, a vanilla bean plant. <laughs> Uh, well, they look like they're, they're quite nice looking vine with the yeah, little, yeah, glossy dark green leaves. Yeah, they're, they're quite attractive and their flowers are pretty. And for those who don't know, vanilla is actually an orchid. Um, mm. So it's, as far as I know, it's the only commercially grown orchid that has a edible product. I mean, there's plenty of commercially grown orchids, of course, but mm. uh, as a commercial edible crop, it's the only orchid uh, that gives us something back that we can eat. Um, and so it's an interesting plant. And because it originated in uh, Mexico, uh, it hasn't taken its pollinator with it. So anywhere else in the world they grow it, it has to be hand pollinated. So, um, And I guess that uh, Aquas wouldn't allow us to bring in that little moth from Mexico <laughs> just to pollinate our, uh, our vanilla bean plants. Oh, dear. <laughs> Now, I had a, an SMS come in from uh, John. He wanted to know how the Plant Trust president uh, or AGM went. Um, the AGM for Plant Trust uh, was a Zoom meeting, as we all seem to be getting used to, I guess, uh, which was held last week. Um, and the meeting went really well. We got more than a quorum, uh, which was good. Uh, we had Donna from ba Bendigo, uh, no, Bendigo, Ballarat uh, Botanic Gardens did a talk for us on their two begonia collections, which was really interesting because they have the tuberous begonia collection and they have the other begonia collection which has got all the leafy ones and the cane ones and all that sort of stuff and um, so she did a talk for us and uh, we got some new people on committee um, which is fantastic um, and yes I'm president again <laughs> so it's really hard to get out of those jobs once you're in there, I find. Uh, so, yes, I'm president of Plant Trust again. And, in fact, the committee, as much as it was, we've had one or two drop out. We've had three new committee members come on board, which is good. We've got a new secretary um, and long may he reign. Um, and, uh, yes, so Plant Trust is still tootling along, registering collections and doing their thing. And if anybody's interested, please come on board because uh, it's a worthy organisation that registers important plant collections all over the country. So, all right, now I better just quickly do a station ID and all the other things that we should do just to remind people, particularly if they've just got up. So we are 3CR and this is the gardening program that's on every Sunday morning from 7.30 to 9.15. I am Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and YouTube channel The Horticulturalists. And on board we have Chloe Foster, uh, now Chloe Thompson, sorry. Wrong Chloe. <laughs> oh, I rang the wrong one this morning as well, so... <laughs> I'm sorry. How do you like yourself to be introduced, Chloe? Um, Chloe Thompson from Been There, Dug That is yep. fine. All right, good. Uh, and, of course, we have Jeremy Francis from the well-known garden in the Dandenong's Cloud Hill. So if you've got any questions of Chloe or of Jeremy or, of course, of me, please get on board and get in touch with us. Either talk off air uh, on 94190155 or the text number, which is 0488 809 855.
All right, well, I'm going to talk about one or two little plants I bought in just because I can. Um, and I've got them here, and it would seem very sad if I didn't mention them. And some of these might be things that Jeremy's growing because, of course, the climate at Mount Macedon is not dissimilar to that of the Dandenongs. So we do grow a similar palette of plants. And the one I bought in, which I'm hoping you can see on screen there with its little cute bells on it, um, <laughs> is a North American woodland plant called Uvularia. Uh, Uvularia grandiflora. Um, it's commonly known as Merry Bells, which I think is quite a cute name for it because it has little lemon bells on it. And it's sort of like, it grows in a sort of a sense like a uh, Solomon seal for people who want to know how it grows, but smaller. So it's only only probably about 20 to 30 centimetres tall at maximum. Uh, it's a woodland plant, so it likes deciduous overhead canopy, so it's got light when it's coming up, but some shade in the summer when it's going down, and it likes a really nice uh, leafy soil. And I love it for the fact that whoever the botanist was who named it, or the taxonomist who named it, he had to have had a really bad morning when he named this plant or he was a taxonomist with no soul whatsoever because uvularia is named after the bit of skin that hangs down the back of your throat. Oh. Your uvula. <laughs> of course. It's a bit of trivia that uh, <laughs> I love for the fact that it's just so gross. I mean, why would you plant, call a name a, or name a plant after the bit of skin that hangs down the back of your throat? I mean... What a day that taxonomist must have been having. So it's quite a handsome thing too. It is. It's a beautiful it's plant. So yeah, it deserved probably a far more romantic botanical name than Uvularia. I mean, Grandiflora, of course, means large flowered, and it is the largest flowered of its genus. People think when they see Grandiflora that it's got to have something that's got big grand flowers on it, but it's comparative. So it has big flowers compared to the other Uvularia species. So it is a small, dainty and attractive little woodland plant. So I think it's rather rather quaint. I don't think it's ungrowable in Melbourne, but you would need to have it in a cool, shady aspect. Um, and you may need to work on the ground to make the ground rich and, and happy for it. And if any of you out there are growing things like Solomon seals, lily of the valley, uh, any of those other sort of classical woodland plants and doing reasonably well with them, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't grow a uvularia if you wanted to have a crack at it. So there we go. It's something really, really interesting, I think, uh, and something that people won't see, generally speaking. Do you grow it in the garden up there, Jeremy? I do have it. Um, I had it, um, yeah, actually, it's interesting. So I had it in a fairly shady spot yeah. um, underneath the conifer, which I got tired of and removed last uh, about 12 months ago so it went into quite a bit of sunshine and uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think as soon as you came up with the uh, with the plant I was trying to think now how's mine going I'm not too sure I mean, oh, you'll have to get better go have a look I would suggest where you are up there and where we are at Macedon too it often does better where it gets a little bit of sunlight in the in the spring um, so you know as long as it doesn't get hot and baked in the summer it will probably be all right without its conifer over canopy so yeah there you go. it could be um, uh, our strongest clump of Solomon Seal is in, well, not full sun, but it's pretty close to full yeah, sun. Yeah, yes, I think it copes with a lot more sun than most people give it credit for. Now, we've had a call come in, uh, and this one might be one for you, Chloe, maybe. Uh, Drew from Montmorency uh, wants to have a mulberry tree, but wants some general information about, you know, aspect, could it espalier, what its full size is, you know, any sort of general info on the mulberry tree. I know that you don't plant one over your terrazzo paving. 
No, <laughs> definitely don't plant it over a carport near, yes, as you said, beautiful white paving near where you normally sit outdoors. Yeah, that's right, because you'll end up with the worst red purple stains <laughs> on everything. Um, uh, but definitely do plant it somewhere full sun um, and definitely somewhere where you can um, harvest the fruit. And yeah things um i haven't got i've got a mulberry at my place but my parents do at their property in research and that's mm. right near montmorency um, and they keep theirs quite pruned quite short so yep. you can be quite ruthless and keep them quite short um they probably got it less than pruned to less than probably about eight foot yes i'm um, not much taller than that that way they can net it really easily they can get all the fruit the grandkids can come over when they're allowed and yeah. um stand underneath and fill their face with mulberries, which they adore. Mm. What um, about espalier? Do you think espalier is a possibility with a mulberry? I've not seen look, one espaliered, but... I've never seen one, but mm. I think with espalier, probably it's a case of never say never. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I, I could see that. And, of course, if you don't prune it, it can make quite a substantial shade tree, can't it? It can, yes. Mm. Uh, there was a primary school when I was a kid that had a ridiculous one that, you know, to get the fruit you had to climb up. Um, so yeah, they can get quite big. Yeah, but... yeah they're but... very, very tough trees. Yeah. Very but tough trees. Yeah. yeah, generally the ones you see are the white mulberry, uh, which is the Chinese mulberry, which is also the uh, silkworm mulberry. Yeah. Um, the uh, English mulberry is the black mulberry, uh, a much smaller tree. So if someone wants a smaller tree, that's the one to go for. It's uh, it, it, the fruit is uh, slightly tastier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it has slightly hairy leaves and a smaller grower. And I think it takes quite a long time to start fruiting. I, I, it's not one I've ever grown, but I've, mm. I've seen them. The, the, uh, I, I remember um, having a glass of wine with some friends uh, and the, the, with a couple of kids that had vanished into the garden uh, over an hour or two and we were wondering where on earth they were. And they suddenly appeared out from underneath the weeping mulberries. So this is the white. The, the weeping form of the white mulberry. Okay. That was in full fruit. And of course, they were absolutely purple. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. And it takes ages for those stains to wear out, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> you can scrub and scrub and scrub. And I think clothes could probably be discarded after a mulberry hunt, personally. <laughs> it needs to be done nude. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, dear. All right. So I hope that gives Drew a few ideas uh, about mulberries. I mean, they're a gorgeous fruit, and I do love them as a berry, uh, but I do wonder, uh, apart from the fact that they make a nice shade tree when they get old, I'm not sure they're productive enough to warrant uh, the sort of space that they can take up in a garden. So if I was trying to be seriously productive, I'm not sure mulberry would be at the top of my list, I have to say. But, you know, they are a lovely tree, and I don't know whether it's still there, but there was a lovely mulberry growing at Great Ditster Gardens in England, in Sussex, uh, an old one that was planted, I think, by Christopher Lloyd's parents, uh, and it was a magnificent, gnarly old tree. Uh, I know a big chunk of it came down in a storm at some stage, so I don't know whether the tree's still there, but it was sort of at the end of the Lutchen steps, and it was just the most beautiful shade tree but it used to stain all of the paving uh every every summer there was squished in mulberries everywhere so it it can be a very messy tree all right so that was that one so don't forget to get in touch with us if you've got any questions via text on zero four double eight eight zero nine eight double five 
or talk off air on 94190155. Now, I might just mention another plant while I'm at it because I've got quite a number. And actually, on my YouTube channel this week, this is a plant that featured, and that's Trillium. Uh, I did a little bit of a, a Trillium video. Uh, this one's a bit wobbly in its pot, so I'm trying not to break it. And it's a white-flowered one, uh, probably a form of Trillium chloropetalum, although in this country, Trilliums, uh, particularly in that group, tend to be a little hybrid-y, I think. Uh, I don't think we've got the wild species growing here. And Trilliums are for the people who want to start gardening early in life uh, because they can take eight to ten years to flower from seed. So, you know, there's a long-term program for somebody if they want to take it on. Although I've always said to people, if I make 80, I want to plant something that takes 20 years to flower so I've got something to live for. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe raising some trillium seed might be just as good a way of going when I hit 80. Um, and a single flowering plant, which could be 8 to 10 years old, the next year might have two stems but only one flowering, and the third year it might have three stems but two flowering. So to build up a big clump takes quite some time. Uh, but they've got to be one of the great woodland perennials, and I'm assuming that at Cloud Hill you have them in great drifts, do you, Jeremy? <laughs> I've never quite got into trilliums. Haven't you? What? <laughs> Goodness me. Then, as you speak, I'm, I'm, um, I'm just trying to remember the name of uh, uh, someone who built up a colossal collection of the Kenlock. And oh, yes, yes, Tim yeah, Orphan. He was, he was very Yeah, of course, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. He, he had a lovely collection of them up there. I've got a beautiful drift of them at the nursery at Mount Macedon, but I cheated in a way because I used to get, 20 or 30 flowering size rhizomes every year from Ken Gillanders in Tasmania when he had his nursery going, Woodbank. And so every year, Ken would send me 20 or 30 trilliums. I'd plant two or three out in the ground. I'd sell the others on so that, you know, the ones I had were then being paid for by other people, which worked <laughs> quite well. Um, and when Ken was deciding it was time to retire, he rang me one day and he said, oh, uh, this will be the last year for Trillium, Stephen, if you want some, because uh, I'm going to sell the property and I'm, you know, I'm not going to be running a nursery anymore and all that sort of stuff. And I rather blithely just said, oh, well, send me what you've got. Uh, <laughs> and about $4,500 later, um, I had, after I picked myself up off the ground, uh, I had a serious collection of trilliums. So I've now got this great drift of them in the nursery, and now I've got this critical mass that I can dig some from each year without sort of having a, a huge impact on it. So it's fantastic, and I'm pleased I spent that money now. Um, but, yeah, I went into that like a lamb to the slaughter. I couldn't believe how much money I spent. I mean, he was very generous, and I certainly got good value for money, but I ended up with a huge quantity and it's the only way I would have ever ended up with a huge quantity because I don't have the time to concentrate on them. And I mean, I was potting up some three-year-old seedlings the other day that I'd raised and I'd forgotten the pot was sitting in the back of the shade house. Um, they probably would be bigger by now if I'd divided them and potted them earlier, um, but they're still probably three or four years away from flowering size. So when people come into the nursery and you tell them what you want to charge them for a flowering size trillium, uh, they gasp. But then when you explain what it's all about, um, it is, in fact, I think, a plant that you can't really charge enough for because they're, you know, the time and effort that goes into them, um, you really don't get recompensed for. But they are beautiful woodland plants. And if people want to know a little bit more about them, I would suggest going in and having a look at the YouTube video because I go into more detail and you can also see my big drift of them growing in the nursery garden. So if 
if you can't get out of the city at the moment, which you can't, uh, to come up and visit me, sadly, while my trilliums are in flower, at least you can see them on the net. So it might be worth your while going in and having a look. So, so you haven't got big drifts up there, Jeremy. I'm no, I, I do have one or two. Yeah, uh, but not not big drifts. Yeah. Uh, I do have a nice drift of um, of Galanthus oesia now. Yeah, oh, good, good. Yeah, well, that's and, the that, sort of plant you should be growing. Yes. Yeah, and and um, um, well, that's that's a little bit tricky. Once you that does need a little bit of chilling, as, yeah. uh, as far as I can figure out. And and uh, I started off with just a few from uh, friends in Gembrook, uh, you know, fifteen or twenty bulbs, I suspect, and and uh, had them growing underneath the two big weeping maples for a while. Yeah. And Otto um, very kindly donated some of his rarities and. Yeah. Um, the Elweezy eyes went out underneath the, the big um, fernleaf beach that we have. Um, and uh, they started off as a few clumps, and the live birds kicked them all over the place. So oh, dear. Now they, they fill up quite a big area, I suppose, about uh, 15, 20 metres by about, about 15 mm. metres or so. Well, and, see, and, and yeah. it's just about solid. Yeah, well, that's, that's probably that's, something that, you wouldn't see elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and they, the beauty of those things is they um, they they virtually start to um, show a little bit of colour uh, as the, the last autumn leaves are coming down. I yeah. find, yeah. Um, and um, we have them flowering for about six weeks or so. Yeah, yeah. Galanthus for anybody who's listening in are the true snowdrops. So yeah. just so that you're aware of what we're talking about, um, and many of them do do far better up in the Dandenongs and Mount Macedon and places like that than probably they will do in the city. But I have clients that have grown all these things. I've got clients that have got trilliums in Melbourne. I've got clients that have got galanthus. Um, and it's surprising what you can do if you just find that right little microclimate for those plants. So, uh, yes, I think they're, they're definitely worthwhile looking at. Although I have to say, Jeremy, I don't think I will ever be, and I probably would suggest you will never be, a true galanthophile. Where no, you go, I... you go out and you spend a fortune on yet another white and green spotty thing, which looks very similar to the other green and white spotty things that you've got already. Uh, but apparently, it's a rarer variety. Uh, I mean, I can never quite get my head around why people will pay five hundred pounds for a new galanthus that comes onto the market when it's not pink or red or anything. It's still basically the same colours as all the other galanthuses that are out there. So, uh, and I can't tell a difference between half of them uh, if they if I lose the labels i'm in real trouble um so they're gorgeous but you know as far as i'm concerned a nice drift of any galanthus is worth having but um they're not something that i'm out of my way to collect so uh it's, a, it's an interesting little thing isn't it the the uh, the, the plant collectors and the uh, designers uh, i do collect a little bit but uh, <laughs> only so far i've got a little bit of a collection of epimediums and, i am and um uh, just thinking of plants that are looking very handsome at the moment. Uh, there's one, one obviously named by an American um, Epimedium spine tingler. Yeah, which is just absolutely stunning. Have you got it planted next to Darth Vader? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've yeah, got I've got Darth I, I Vader in Darth the garden. Yeah. <laughs> I bought it just because of the yeah. name. Uh, but uh, spine tingler, despite the awful name, is is. Uh, uh, long serrated leaves, quite a bit of colour in the leaves. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it looks faintly bristly. Yeah. And uh, with spidery yellow flowers, um, I'm 
just trying to find a photograph of it. Just well, Googling it. Yeah, just Googling <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, I have to say, I've got a joke to throw in here. You know, it's good to collect epimediums because you can't have too few, you can't have too many, you just have an epimedium. Uh, uh, sorry. Um, yes. <laughs> One thing, like, uh, that's um, uh, friends of ours in King Lake, the antique perennial yeah. boys, uh, have a pretty uh, substantial collection of them. Um, and all of them are worthwhile growing up to a point, but uh, uh, I, I, I think there's about 12 or so that are absolutely superb. Yeah. And they're such easy plants to grow. Yeah. And, and they grow in such um, uh, in, in spots in the garden where nothing else will grow, of course, yeah. uh, a lot of shade, root competition, dry soil. Yep. yep. Uh, and uh, we I, I use them for... Um, edging borders especially with uh, slopes and our lyrebirds kicking soil around they, yeah. they can't disturb an heavy medium <laughs> they're very very tough yeah they're, they are they do have tough. a good matty root system don't they yeah. in fact they can be quite a challenge to divide i find absolutely uh, yeah so it's a hard work uh, plant the epimedium if you're growing them commercially i have to say so yep. there you go all right um now, I haven't got any calls up at the moment, so don't forget, folks, the 3CR Gardening Program would love to hear from you in one form or another. So the text number is 0488809855, or you can talk off air on 94190155. And we've got Chloe Thompson uh, we've uh, from Been There, Dug That. We've got uh, Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill Nursery, uh, Cloud Hill Nursery, Cloud Hill Garden uh, up in the Dandenongs, which of course has a nursery attached, so that's why I get confused. Um, and me, Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants at Mount Macedon. So unless you live nearby, you probably can't visit Jeremy or I, but anyhow, uh, you will be able to in due course. Uh, I assume the nursery and the garden are open for locals though, Jeremy? Um. It's an interesting little query at the moment, Stephen. Where there's been a little outbreak of COVID in the Dandenongs oh, just yeah. in the last two days. Ah. And now, so that's the problem. Hmm. The nursery, the Diggers Club nursery, has been closed um, for the last, um, well, <laughs> since the autumn, I think. Yeah. Uh, they're doing everything online. So if you're hunting down... Um, any of their seeds just go online and they're available and that's no fuss at all. They're uh, very, very busy actually. But the nursery at Cloud Hill is, has been um, padlocked now since, uh, since May, I think. Oh, goodness. Um, and um, now we, we, the restaurant has been open doing takeaway up until the last day or two, but um, this little outbreak around here is such that uh, I think we're going to stay closed for the next week or two. Oh, yeah, well, we'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah, well, I guess it's you've got to be sensible about these things and you know take proper yeah. precautions if we're going to live through it all. So, yeah. now, so the, the, the hope is, of course, that uh, well, we will come out the other side fairly soon as mm. we get our our injection rates up. And for goodness mm. sake, everyone get their needles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm double vaxxed. Uh, I'm double vaxxed. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm double vaxxed. <laughs> yeah, You're halfway there, yeah. are you, Chloe? Yeah. Halfway there. Yeah. I was only just in. The, I was only just allowed in the category. So. Oh yeah. Well, that was an issue too, of course, because you know not everybody could get vaccinated initially, and you know you had to get a Pfizer if you were a certain age and all yeah. that sort of stuff. So it did make it quite complicated and difficult. But surely now it's not so complicated. We, I think, we just should all 
get out there and deal with it. I want to get back to living again, and I want to go out exactly. and tour again, and I want to do absolutely, all the things I want to do again. And, yeah, uh, totally. And anyway, I want to... Anyway, but my suspicion is we're within a, about three or four weeks of, of the, getting through this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, vaccinations. I, I, in fact, I was slow to be vaccinated myself because I had a, a very unusual medical condition which might have been triggered by the AstraZeneca. Oh, yeah. uh, eventually uh, they, they got some figures on it and uh, the, and the, the uh, chances of uh, being <laughs> killing over from AstraZeneca was... Uh, rather than one in a million, it's one in a hundred thousand to my uh, in, in my particular instance. And I thought they, they were pretty good odds. As soon as I heard those, I had the needle three minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those odds don't sound too bad. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you something, Stephen. I'll tell you, anyone just uh, at the moment, there's, uh, as I said, a little outburst around the Dandenongs and uh, crikey, the first thing I thought, well, I've just had my second needle uh, 10 days ago. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. Yeah, it does yeah, give you a I sense mean, of relief. I mean, we know yeah, that we're not 100% absolutely. protected, but yes, I do feel a lot more comfortable about it myself, I have yeah. to say. All right, well, I've got another plant that I would like to discuss. And if I hold it up to my screen like that, you can see the little plant there. And up until quite recently, I would have grown this as an anemone blander. Um which is uh, a little Grecian windflower. It has a little woody rhizome tubery thing underneath it that you can't find when it's dormant. They are so hard to see. Um, and it grows well in sunny rock gardens and and sort of semi-woodlandy conditions, but not too dark and dingy, so it needs a little bit of light. But apparently a lot of the small anemones have been taken out of the genus now, and they're now anemonoides. So this is now a Nemonoides blander. Uh, and I only found that out a couple of days ago. Um, and it's one of those things I wouldn't have thought to check. Um, and for anybody who's really annoyed by name changes, stiff. It's just what we've got to go through at the moment. Um, and people often ask me why. And why, of course, is the fact that we can now check chromosomes and genes and things. And they're finding that plants have got further um, uh, further apart from each other or closer together than each, to each other than, than they would have initially thought just visually. And so there's a lot of name changes going on at the moment. And in fact, I rarely write a label now without checking. Um, mm. And so, yes, yeah, so anemone blander and anemone nemorosa, which is the little wood anemone from Europe, and several of the other smaller growing plants that were always in the anemone genus are now anemonoides. So there you go. Bit of a, its flowers look almost brachyscome like. They the do. Look, yeah, yeah, they're similar. They're a bit bigger than your average brachyscome. Um, okay. And I'm assuming that's still the right genus name for those, <laughs> yeah, no, those no, little native daisies. AB's uh, nodding in the background. So, yes, yeah, apparently right. they're still brachyscone. Uh, uh, they don't look dissimilar, but, of course, it's a ephemeral. It's a springtime ephemeral. Mm. So it comes up, does its thing in the spring, disappears fairly quickly when you get your first warm days, and you'll forget it's there uh, until the next late winter when it pops up again. It will lightly self-seed itself, and the tubers do sort of uh, break up and, and multiply slowly. Uh, but it's from self-sown seed that it will colonise best if you can get it happy in your garden. And it should be very growable in Melbourne, I would have thought, given a, uh, the right sort of perhaps morning sun aspect rock garden or something like that. And it certainly naturalises itself around my garden in Macedon a bit. You can occasionally get it in pure white as well. Uh, there is a rather inappropriately muddy pink one called Charmer, um, uh, although I've got a really clear pale pink one that came up in the garden at home 
uh, as just a, a seedling, which is much better than uh, colour-wise than the cultivar called Charmer, because I think it's a rather dirty shade of pink, so I'm not really fond of it. Uh, but I don't know what I'll call mine if I ever put a name on it. Um, and <laughs> that, that always makes me laugh. You mentioned, you know, obviously an American name, that epimedium, uh, which is probably true. The Americans do give some fairly bizarre names to plants, uh, some of which I quite, uh, make me smile, but some of which are just naff and silly. Uh, but uh, if somebody does breed a new plant, do consider the name you give it very carefully. Because if a plant is going to succeed in horticulture, it not only has to be a good plant, but it has to have a name that's going to engage with people. So don't go too naff. I mean, there's plenty of naff names out there, unfortunately. Uh, and don't go too esoterically weird that doesn't really have a context with the plant. If you can give it a name that sort of designates something about the plant is good. Um, like, for instance, say, probably one of my least favourite rhododendrons would have to be rhododendron pink pearl. I think it's a muddy pink. It has palish green foliage. It's rather a spindly grower. I don't think there's anything about that plant that I consider top notch. But it's probably one of the best selling rhododendrons out there because the name works. You know, mm. Pink pearl. It's a, it's a name people can remember. Uh, it designates something about the plant and it's straightforward and simple. I mean, rhododendron white pearl is a far better rhododendron and it's also mm. a good name, except that it comes out baby pink and then goes white. And so people think they've got pink pearl and uh, it does go quite a nice clear white, but it's a far better rhododendron with good foliage and what have you. Uh, bigger grower. Uh, so not everybody can fit a white pearl in their garden. Uh but it is about names. I mean, there was a rhododendron around the traps very, very long time ago and probably isn't being grown commercially by anybody anymore because it's not that easy to propagate as well. Uh, but it was a far better pink rhododendron than pink pearl, but it was called Faggotter's Favourite. You know, where's that poor plant going to go? I mean, even if it was the world's best rhododendron. Um, and it was also perfumed as well. So it had a light scent. It had a lovely pink flower, uh, had good foliage, but it did have to be grafted because it couldn't be struck from cutting. So that was one slash against it. And the fact that it was called Faggotter's Favourite, I mean, Mrs. Faggotter, who it was named after, was probably a charming woman, but they should never have named a rhododendron after it. It's a dreadful name. Uh, so, yes, you need to think names through. All I can think of when you talk about dreadful names is the rude botany as well. Have you seen that? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that's just people uh, putting a different spin on a name that's already out there that could be considered slightly iffy. Uh, well, some of them are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> some of them. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm sure the taxonomists, when they named those plants, didn't do it on purpose. You know, there was, there was. I don't know. Some of them sound like they sat there and went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they could have done. They could have done. But uh, yes, I have seen the rude botany things, and yes, uh, I'm not sure I'd wear the t-shirt necessarily with the plant name on it. Uh, I could get arrested, I reckon, with some of those plant names. Uh, I'd be a good way to tell the plant people around you because they'd be the ones sort of, you know, yeah, yes. double taking. Yeah, they would rather. Oh, dear. All right. Now, probably, uh, just thinking of uh, just thinking of plant names, uh, the um, the uh, the American tree penis, uh, as, as, you know, I can think of iris, I can think of uh, daylilies, the hemorrhicalis, yeah. and there's a mighty lot of pretty ordinary names in amongst those. Oh, yes. Way too many plants anyway. But when it comes to the tree penis, uh, I think that most of the work there was done by professors of English, and yes. they have incredible names. Yeah, so yeah, just actually superb. Like just run through them. Um, uh, Boreas, uh, 
and um, Heart of Darkness and Tiger Tiger. And I mean, some of these paintings you grow for the names there, I yeah. say. But, but and of course, if, about... if you were to translate some of the Japanese and Chinese names, oh, they yeah. were also very poetic and, and what have you. I mean, we're not allowed to translate them as in you can't change the name to the English equivalent, but it's nice to know what the translations are because the Japanese and things, you know, will call something, you know, Mane of the Lion and all sorts of, you know, evocative and romantic sorts of names um, uh, and so if you do translate them it's really interesting to see how they've used their names as well but yes you're right the Americans were quite good at naming peonies which is such a relief because they're such a wonderful <laughs> plant and it would be sad if they called it sort of Darth Vader or something wouldn't it <laughs> I mean really um, now Jeremy a question uh, yep. how did Cloud Hill come through the big storm? Did you get much damage in the garden? Because we got some substantial damage up at Macedon. Uh, interesting question, Stephen. We came through pretty well, but by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there no damage in the gardens whatsoever, really. I mean, I, I, it's so little damage that uh, I can think of one plant that lost uh, a liquid amber form sana mm. that uh, lost the uh, top two metres. <laughs> Literally, that was the, the one bit of damage I could see. Although there was so much rubbish blown into the garden, yeah. it took the uh, best part of a week to clean up. Yeah. And, but that, that was rubbish from elsewhere. On the other hand, I uh, three weeks later, I discovered that uh, a road only just down the slope from us, in more or less in direct line with us, uh, 200 trees down. Oh, goodness. And, yes. and that, you know, literally uh, uh, within two, 300 metres yeah. uh, of the garden. Ooh. So very, very close. In fact, uh, where we live on the tourist road, just a couple of minutes away, um, um, the, a whole section of forest came down. Yeah. Uh, just again, just a few meters away. Mm. In fact, uh, I slipped straight through it. Uh, Valerie, on the other hand, <laughs> <laughs> next morning was saying, "I was listening to trees coming down all last night." And I, I, I said, "Oh, come on!" Yes, <laughs> Got in the yes car. you're dreaming. Yes. <laughs> oh gosh. And uh, yeah, three houses demolished within. Um, 200 metres to where we live and mm. another two or three damaged. Yeah. Yes, it was a horrifying night, I have to say. There was it oodles was. of damage done up around our way and nearly all the big gardens at Macedon had some substantial damage and lost some significant trees and, and what have you. And trees that weren't significant that came down still managed to make an awful lot of mess. So yeah. uh, I've been to some of the gardens since the, the storm and uh, there's still oodles are cleaning up to do because of course a lot of the tree surgeons and and uh, people working around the area had to deal with the important things like clearing driveways getting things off roofs of houses and you know all of those sort of important things so some tree that came down across the lawn in a big garden just had to stay there and you know slowly being cleaned up now and it was only in the last week actually that they opened up the top of Mount Macedon for people to drive up to the top again uh, so you can now go up to the Memorial Cross and the tea rooms at the top of the mountain um, and uh, that whole area had been closed up until about a week ago so it's it's rather interesting in the Dandenongs um Fortunately, Sherbrooke, uh, very little damage. Yeah. So that that area of mountain ash is still there. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. On the other hand, Calorama, just devastation. Yeah. And that's where a lot of houses uh, were destroyed. I mean, it, it was uncanny. We we had over a hundred houses demolished on the uh, 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 within say two kilometres of here. No one killed us. It's mm. absolutely uncanny how that yeah. could happen. I mean. 
but the damage around Calorama is colossal. Rickard Sanctuary, um, it's a big puzzle. There's so much damage there that um, they might have to close. I really don't know. I think um, Parks Victoria, they still don't know what to do about it. Yeah. And that's true for quite a bit of the mountain. There are so many trees down and a lot of these trees are not accessible. They, 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 they just, they've cleaned up along the edges of the roads, but once they get away from the roads, they don't know what to do. Yeah. What yeah. about some of the other major sort of touristy gardens up there? What about the rhododendron gardens? and um, and those... A little bit of damage in the rhododendron gardens, I understand. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, we uh, we drove and drove around it. We can see damage uh, in the car park. Yeah, mm. and tops of trees. It's extraordinary. Trees snapped in half. Oh yes, yes. Uh, and and um, and um, but not so much damage there, I suppose. Um, Periander, I think, came through pretty well. Good. And the uh, Tyndale Memorial Gardens, I don't think there was that much damage there. Oh, they're, they're oh, oh well, that's, that's something. Uh, what about um, Burnham Beaches? How's the garden there? Did we hear anything about that one? Do you know? I'm not too sure. No, um, it, it's it's closed, uh, of course, so uh, we, we just haven't had a chance to check it. Um you would think the gardens down in the um, shelter down the valleys would be quite safe, but it's it's not true. Uh, some of the worst damage we saw is, uh, in the um, at the lowest points of Perrin Creek, uh, and um, it was just the direction of the wind. It was such an unusual direction mm. for a strong wind, and it was so severe for. 14 hours. Uh, as an illustration, one of the we we had about um, 70, 80 teams of arborists, and they mm. came from the interstate, of course. And I was speaking to a Queensland arborist who was very familiar with working in cyclone areas, areas being hit by cyclones. And I asked him how did the dandongs compare, and he said, "Well, much worse than any cyclone he's ever seen." Goodness me! So it's on that level, just extraordinary. I mean, I'd also heard that a lot of the damage was because the trees weren't used to the winds coming so yeah, strongly absolutely. from a wrong direction. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, the house we live in has two big trees off to the southeast. And, uh, and when we were deciding uh, which uh, <laughs> we stay there, uh, live there, uh, I, I was saying to Valerie, well, those, they're, they're within striking range, but they're to the southeast. We'd never get south still be fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, well, I can say of Mount Macedon, at least, I mean, there's been substantial damage in some of our gardens, but none of the major houses copped any damage. Uh, I mean, a couple of smaller homes did get uh, some serious damage, uh, but all of our big houses came through it fantastically well. Um, and uh, the clean-up's still going. I mean, Forest Glade, uh, which is one of the gardens up there that's open regularly to the public, um, their whole gully area, so from the bottom part of the main garden there's sort of these paths that wind right down to the fern gully at the bottom it is just like armageddon down in there i mean all the big gums and blackwoods and things came crashing down everywhere it's going to take them months and months and months uh, if not years to clean it up because they can't get machinery in it's all just little walking paths um so everything has to be done by hand and it's going to be an awfully long time before some of those places are back in order uh but it's interesting the native trees tended to suffer more badly more badly 
Did I say that right? <laughs> <laughs> Worse um, than some of the exotic trees. We didn't have quite as many exotic trees come down, but we did have some large conifers that came down. Um, and we had a couple that were snapped off high up in the air, a couple of big abies in one of the gardens that got snapped about 30 or 40 feet up in the air and the whole top of the trees come out and down. So the tree's basically ruined. I mean, it'll never be a good tree again. So I think the long-term plan would be to remove them altogether. Um, but the blackwoods and the eucalypts, they came peeling out of the ground everywhere. It was just frightening. So, yes, yeah, they that, don't anchor true. well. True. true in the Dandongs as well, Lee. Mm. The, and, and, and when you stand on the ridge and look across, uh, what's really startling is you see patches of forest, mm. not one tree left standing and uh, over several acres. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just one tree went down, then the next one, then the next mm. one, and they over, well, 12, 15 hours or so, uh, maybe two or 300 trees, yeah. not one left. Oh, dear. Yeah. And it will be years before those regenerate enough to sort of hide the scars too, I guess. So it's going to be a long-term yep. project. Absolutely. Now, uh, don't forget, folk, ring in uh, and you can talk off air on 94190155. And if you want to text us, which would be really, really good, we'd love to hear from you. And the text uh, number is 0488809855. Uh, and Peter from Notting Hill has uh, um, has a variegated vanilla bean and a green form. Um, so he's he's growing it uh, um, in Notting Hill. Um, I'm assuming inside. And he reckons that a couple of other things you might grow, Chloe, might be exoras and frangipanis. <laughs> so there you go. Although I have to think frangipanis might be a bit big for what sounds like a quite yeah. small greenhouse. Uh, but the exoras might be nice. They're a very ornamental um, tropical plant that you could probably grow quite well and give you a bit of yeah. colour. So there you go. Mm. How good's oh. that? So, uh, yes, I do like the idea of the vanilla bean, though. I'm getting more and more excited <laughs> by that. Uh, <laughs> I want you to buy one just so that we can get a regular update on how your vanilla crop is going. <laughs> All right, I'll stalk the diggers' website yeah. <laughs> tomorrow when they hit the release. <laughs> yes, I think that's a good idea. Uh, uh, All right, well, please ring us in. Uh, don't forget you're on the 3CR Gardening Program. You've got Jeremy Francis, uh, you've got Chloe um, Thompson and me, Stephen Ryan, here at your service. So do give us a call and have a chat to us about anything that you need to talk to us about in your garden. And I think I might talk about another one of the plants I've brought in because I need to send Liz a whole pile of pictures so that you can put them up on our uh, social media pages so that you can actually see what these things look like. And <laughs> one I didn't bring in because they were too big to bring in, but I bought the label in, uh, was a little dwarf prunus incisor, Kojo no Mai. And I bought the label in uh, and... Um, I've become quite fond of this funny little thing. I'm ne I mean, I'm not a mad pink person in the garden, I have to say. I, th I think pink is an insidious colour because there's so many plants that are good plants that come in pink that it's almost impossible to exclude pink from your garden and it can take over if you're not careful because, you know, there's so many pink roses and pink camellias and pink everything else. Um, but this little prunus uh, is a very pale pink, almost verging on white, and it's either grafted near ground level and will make a little bush about a metre and a half each way, or they graft it up onto a standard, so you can end up with sort of a ball on a stick um, 
which isn't a box ball or a bay tree ball or, a, you know, the, the classical sort of commonly expected things as a ball on a stick. So it could make a lovely pair on either side of your neo-Georgian portico, maybe. <laughs> um, and it's very cute. It flowers for quite a long time, which is unusual for prunuses. They're, they're often very fleeting. It has tiny little leaves. Uh, it colours well in the autumn, so the autumn colour is really good on it. And it has zigzaggy branches so that when it's bare in the winter, it has textural quality, which I find quite intriguing. Have you grown that particular one up at Cloud Hill, um, Jeremy? I, I have, actually. In fact, I got myself into trouble with that one. Oh, how did you <laughs> get yourself into trouble? Yeah, it was released by Flemings yeah. uh, oh, oh, about 12, 15 years ago, and they did quite a batch, and they didn't know quite what to do with them. They took them up to a to a moderately advanced size, and I, I saw these as I was driving around one day, and yeah. and uh, they just looked amazing uh, sitting in the pots. Yeah. Um, so I, I grabbed a heap of them, but, and uh, people thought the same thing, and they went sailing out, and I think I sold... Single-handedly, I sold a, a fair percentage of the batch that Flemings yeah. had mm. and uh, um, planted one myself. And then over the next year or two, I was a little bit disappointed with it. It is something you've got to be a bit patient with, I feel. Mm. Um, and I had uh, quite a few gardeners sort of say the same thing. You know, why you were selling those? I find that very disappointing. Yeah. But... Um, but I agree that it's now fabulous. It's a, it's a, it's a soft pink. Mm. It's a, it, it has a lot of character, much more character than most Japanese cherries um, and um, quite compact. And, and um, we have it in our shrub border. And yeah. for, it, mine is up, uh, well, about two and a half metres now. Yeah. Is it a low so graft? It, or a... It'll get up. Mm. Yeah, so it will in time. But it's very prunable, I guess, as well. So you could control it quite Quite yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, and I know that Flemings have struggled with it since too, getting quantities up again. Um, so a couple of times I've tried to order it from them, and they've said, "Oh, we've only got three this year." And you think, "Oh <laughs> God, well, you know, it's hardly worth it." But I have got other growers that are doing it now, so there does seem to be a little bit of stock out there available. And I got a nice batch of them this year as bare rooted plants uh, from one of the growers. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm. Rather taken with it. I think it's an interesting little prunus. And as I said, it's pale pink, which isn't necessarily my favourite colour. Um, but it's a very soft, gentle little tree, and it does do other things through the year. Because your classical flowering cherries, I call them barometer plants, because as soon as they come into flower, the wind picks up. Uh, <laughs> and so if you get a few days out of the average flowering cherry, you're doing quite well. And because they can grow into quite large trees, I like visiting them in other people's gardens, because I just think they're they take up too much space in my garden uh, for the amount of beauty I get from them over a very short period. So uh, I wouldn't plant them in my own garden, but I'd be very tempted with this Kojo Nomai, uh, which is probably a lovely name if you translate it from the Japanese into English. I don't know what it is. I'd have to do a bit of research to find out. Uh, but it's probably a rather romantic name, let's hope. So, um, yeah, so I think it's a really pretty little tree. So it's possibly worthwhile considering and those that are on standards if you are looking for a sort of a formal accent in the garden uh, for whatever reason or a large tub specimen or something like that um, it could be worthwhile having so there you go so that's another little one of the plants I've brought along people are very quiet this morning I, I think daylight saving has kept people in bed and they may well not remember that we're out here and I oh, can't, maybe that's uh, it. <laughs> yeah and I can't yell loud enough for them to hear me and wake them up <laughs> 
<laughs> unfortunately. So those of you, you know, well, even me, I can't do it. Um, for Stephen, those of you who just, are away, just on cherries or yeah. just on prunes, years and years ago, uh, about 35 years ago, in fact, uh, uh, there was a little batch of prunus um, triloba plena mm. available in a nursery in Perth, actually, in Western Australia. Goodness. And I actually got hold of one of these and, and I was growing it in Western Australia and it was a lovely thing. And uh, I, I had it for a few years before we sold and moved to Victoria and I've never seen it since. Now I, I haven't seen it either, to be honest. I, it's one of those I haven't seen around either. And, uh, I mean, there's some actually really pretty prunuses out there that aren't round the trade. Uh, there's one that I tried to encourage uh, one of my growers to do, which was uh, prunus in size of Praycox. Um, which is a basically white-flowered, very small-flowered cherry, but it starts flowering in the autumn and flowers virtually right through the winter. Um, and it's a gorgeous thing, but the grower I had who was playing with it found it really difficult to propagate. So I don't even know whether it's out there still. Um, the only one I've been able to find that's sort of an alternative is uh, Prunus subhertella autumnalis, uh, which is pale pink and starts in autumn and has... Yep sort of successive um, uh, flushes of flowers and mine's still in flower in the garden at home at the moment and you can get that in a white and a pink form although I find most of the growers don't differentiate so if you buy a batch of Prunus subhotella autumnalis you're never sure whether you're getting getting the white one or the pink one until it comes into flower um, uh, most of them seem to be growing the pink though I have to say um, so there are prunuses out there that will give really good value in the garden, yeah, but there are not a lot of them being grown, unfortunately. Um, they're, you know, sort of growing the Cheels cherries and the Mount Fujis and, and they're not moving much outside of that sphere, unfortunately. So, yes, very sad, but there you go. You know, um, I was going to tell you about, I'm very excited about my um, summer flower garden. Mm. I'm going to have a patch that's dedicated purely as like a picking flower garden this summer. All so. right. Mm. I'm very excited. It'll be full of things like your dahlias and your zinnias, but I'm also throwing in there a few other things like the Scabiosa stellata with the beautiful little um, pom-pom heads that yeah. dry. Mm. Um, I've got a friend who's a flower farmer out near Lilydale, Wandon sort of area. Oh, yes. She's even sent me some dahlia seeds, which, of course, if people know dahlia seeds don't come out true to type. So mm. um, it's, I'm feeling like it's, a, it's like a Christmas present, you know, as to what I might get. Now, you know <laughs> that if you get something really interesting in those dahlias that you could name it, but it's not appropriate to name it after yourself, apparently. Ah, oh, what? <laughs> no, no, it's seen as uh, affectatious to name a plant after yourself, apparently, so it's just not the done yeah. thing. So if you want the dahlia... Chloe, or in fact, Chloe <laughs> Thompson, um, then somebody else has to name it after you. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And that's what happened with my dahlia. I have a dahlia called Stephen Ryan. Oh, uh, there you go. And Chris Michaelopoulos, who was uh, at the time president of, I think, the Victorian Dahlia Society. And he still grows and breeds dahlias. And he also looks after the dahlia beds at Ripon Lee. Yeah. Um, and so he's forever breeding new dahlias. And I saw this one that he had in a bunch of flowers that he had at a, a I think it was a national dahlia conference. It may have even been an international one that was being held in Doncaster at one stage. And I'd been invited along as a guest speaker to talk about dahlias and their garden context. Mm. Um, because a lot of breeders breed for the show bench and those yeah. dahlias have a very limited use in the garden quite often. Uh, and so they wanted me to talk about how dahlias could be much more useful as a garden plant if they were breeding with that in mind. Mm. Uh, and he had this simple, single 
pure white dahlia in, a, in this vase of seedlings of his. Um, and he was trying to breed perfume into dahlias. Oh, wow. So, oh. so that was his oh. breeding line. Now, this simple single white one, I sort of fell in love with the look of it. I thought it was just such a lovely, simple flower. And I said to Chris, oh, when you've got a spare tuber of that dahlia, I'd really like one if I could, please. And I bumped into him a year or so later at um, uh, at uh, the exhibition buildings at the garden fair. And um, he looked slightly abashed. And I said, I thought to myself, oh, he's lost the dahlia. So oh. he won't be able to give it to me. And he came up to me and he said, oh, Stephen, um, that dahlia you wanted. And I thought, yeah, here it comes. Uh, and he said, can I name it after you? <laughs> So he did. He registered it with the Dahlia Society in England, which you should do if you're naming yeah. a Dahlia, apparently. Um, and, and then he promptly gave me the world's stock. So oh. he gave me all of the plant of it that he had and said, now it's yours, you deal with it. Uh, and so okay. I felt completely obliged to grow it. So every year I grow a few Dahlia Stephen Ryans to sell oh. at the nursery. And a friend of mine in England now grows it in her garden and she says that it's, I'm the first Dahlia up. I'm the last dahlia down, and she said, and the bugs and things don't seem to eat my flowers like they do with some of the big full double ones, you know, how the earwigs get yep. into them and all that sort of thing. So my simple, single, virginal white, self-supporting, slightly scented dahlia called Stephen Ryan has now become international. Oh, <laughs> so I how think much I need fun? one. Yeah. Sounds good. Isn't it fun, though, when that sort of thing happens? You know, it's sort of serendipitous, and, and I, in one sense I'm quite embarrassed about the fact that I've got a dahlia named after me, but it, <laughs> In a way, I'm quite chuffed. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of an honour. Yeah, it's a but bit of an honour. <laughs> it's fun to raise them from seed because you just don't know what you're going to get. And a friend of mine had a seedling come up of Dahlia Stephen Ryan in their garden, mm. which, of course, can't then be St Stephen Ryan because it's a different clone, and it came up to be a single red. Oh, so in his, he decided to call it Spawn of Stephen. <laughs> oh, dear. Of, yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah, but of course he didn't register the name. <laughs> so, yeah, so single dahlias actually are very prolific. They produce an enormous amount of seed sometimes. So you will, in fact, often get self-sown seedlings if you've got a single dahlia in the garden. Uh, yep. And they're great for pollinators. Uh, yes, they are. Dahlia, single dahlias, the bees and hoverflies and things just adore them. And I yep. think they make really good cut flowers too. I quite like, I like the single them. ones. Yeah. So, no, I like the single ones as well. I, yeah. Pretty much the only dahlias I don't like, I don't like the cactus ones with the, oh, I'm with doing this. the thing with my fingers. where Yeah, they, which well, nobody, nobody can see that though, Chloe. Funny. I know, I know. It's Except silly, for me it? and Jeremy, you probably can see it, that's it. <laughs> I don't like the cactus yeah. ones. They just look silly and spiky to yeah. me. I prefer yeah, see, the... I'm not fond of the pond ponds. I think they look nice in a bouquet or in a yeah, range. Well, maybe there's something really artificial about the shape of them <laughs> to me. Um, and, of course, the great big dinner plate ones I can't quite see any context for, unless you were making a floral arrangement for St Paul's Cathedral. Uh, <laughs> I can't see any real point in having a dahlia that's as big as a cabbage, um, other than the fact that you can grow a dahlia as big as a cabbage. I guess that's... The charm of them is that you can do that. But, yeah, why would yeah. you bother? Um, all right, we've got a call that's come in. Um, uh, Jimmy from Heathmont would like to know the time that gall wasps emerge. Uh, and uh, um, is it time to apply uh, calanin clay? Or should it be koalin clay? I'm not sure what they're talking about, actually. I've not heard of the product. I... 
I heard of that recently that um, a kale and clay has been used to apply to the trees. I think they've been doing it commercially. They spray the trees with a ca- this particular clay yeah. and it helps deter the wasps from laying their uh, eggs into the tree. All uh, right. Yeah, well, that <laughs> makes sense. Now, uh, I'm not in an area where gall wasps has found its way yet, so I haven't had to deal with them in my own garden. But I was under the impression you needed to get the uh, pruning done to get the galls out uh, before the spring got too far underway. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So now would be, you know, towards the end of the gall wasp removal season. So if you've got bad gall wasp in your lemon or, or other citrus tree, uh, now would be the time to clean it out. But do remember that if you don't clean it out, the gall wasps are going to move on to the neighbour's gall or citrus trees and create gall wasps. If we all get on top of it, I mean, we'll never wipe it out necessarily, but we can probably keep it at, at a minimum if, if as many people as possible get onto the job and deal with it. And certainly don't bring it my way. I don't need it. Uh, <laughs> I've got a series of citrus trees in what I grandiosely call my citrus walk um, in our garden at home. Uh, and they've been quite productive and I don't have gall wasp at this stage. And there's not many people around me with citrus. So I'm feeling reasonably safe at the moment. But uh, yes, time will tell. Yeah, and I always tend to say to people, if they find gall wasp in their own citrus trees, you almost need to go and knock on your neighbour's doors yeah. and offer to check and prune their trees as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it needs to be a concerted effort. Otherwise, we won't have any real long-term impact. Um, mm. And, I mean, the tree will keep fruiting and doing things, even if it's badly infested with gall wasp, uh, mm. but it does have an impact on the integrity of the tree given time. So It does. Uh, and, I mean, the younger the tree, the more impact and, you know, mm. smaller the tree is. Um, there's that general saying that you prune in June for yeah. the... So, yeah, try and get to get on top of checking for galls and things, um, as you said, before before the beginning of September. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it would be sort of getting late then probably even now because they've probably started to hatch out by now and yep. they're going to be flying around and starting the next infestation, unfortunately. So I hope that sort of gives you some idea. Oh, here's another one for you, Chloe. The the vegetable gardeners are up and about, I can oh, tell. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, uh, somebody has got in touch and they said they're not getting any heads in their brassicas uh, at this stage. So I'm assuming they're probably talking collies and broccolis and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. What have you got to say about that issue, do you think? Could be a bit of a combination of a few things. Sometimes if they've not had enough of a chill period and time in the ground to actually develop the heads, that can be why. Um I don't know. It can be a number of things. Mm. Um, has the head actually been chewed out as well? Yeah. Um, I know that might sound weird, but the plant, I, I had a cabbage, uh, not a cabbage, a cauliflower continue to grow and I thought it had a Oh, yes, had the flower inside, yeah. Um, and, and then I thought, hang on, why still is nothing developing? And then I looked down inside and the, the whole centre of it had been chewed out by rats or something, I yeah. presume. Yeah, probably um, would be, yeah. So, yeah, it could even be something like that. It's been yeah. attacked. Um, could they just be I, being impatient? I mean, you It know. could be being impatient. Sometimes yeah. some of them take forever. The purple yeah. cauliflower, the purple sprouting broccoli, the Romanesco, they take forever. Yeah, so you've got to be very um, patient with some of the brassicas, I know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it could be that as well, I guess. So. I'm a huge fan of the uh, the side shooting ones or yeah. the 
you know, the broccolini style ones, mm. just because they, you know, as soon as they start shooting, you start picking and they keep growing and they keep shooting. Yeah. Whereas um, a collar, you take the top off and that's the end, don't you really? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love the side shooting ones. If you're an impatient gardener, they're yeah. good. And if you want, you know, good value for the space that you're taking up and, and the yeah. time and effort you're putting in, um, I mean, you do need to select the right vegetables that are going to pay their way. Um, mm. I mean, I love some of the heritage varieties, but there's other heritage varieties. I think, why would you bother with that? I, you only get four or five pieces of fruit off this great big plant and it might taste great, but yep. am I in fact getting value for space? Uh, and I'm also a great believer, I, because I'm a rare plant collector, when I first started my vegetable garden at Macedon, I decided I was going to try everything. Uh, and so I bought seeds and plants of all sorts of vegetables that I would never normally cook. <laughs> And tried them out. And, of course, a lot of them I didn't even like. Um, Mm. I mean, I don't know why anybody wants edible chrysanthemum. Uh, Oh, that's nice in fur, in Vietnamese fur. It's yummy in that. Well, maybe. Uh, I thought it tasted like mortine and it took me about four years to get rid of it because it kept self-seeding itself all over my vegetable garden. And I thought, why? You know, I don't need this plant. Um, And I've had the same attitude to a few different things over the years that I've had a crack at. And so I've, I've got my staples that I know that I need to grow every year and that I enjoy and that I know how to cook and use. Um, uh, And so, yeah, I'm I'm not quite as adventurous anymore as I was. Although I have to say I have planted a crop of the Oxalis tuberosa again this year, which I haven't had for years. Uh, Somebody gave me some tubers of that to to plant again. And I thought, I'll give that another crack. It, It didn't didn't excite me the last time, but I'm going to give it another try and, um, and see if I can grow some of those. So it's a bit, different and if anybody wants any jerusalem artichokes (laughs) (laughs) yeah come to me i mean we ended up with a huge bed full of them and i mean i quite like them roasted in the oven as long as i'm not going out to the theater (laughs) afterwards or staying in Uh, yeah or staying in yeah um and they do make a fantastic soup with carrot and onion and garlic um but again you still have the same impact um so they're not a very social vegetable uh but um you know they're one of those things i always grow i love my um globe artichokes I mean, I love them as a plant in the garden to look at. Structural. Oh, beautiful Mm. plants. Um, And it's always uh, at the time when I need to pick the flower buds to eat, Mm -hmm. that's just at the time when the plants are looking at their all-time best. And to decapitate them is always something of a trial, you know, because they're looking so gorgeous. But the flower buds cooked are just so fantastic. You know, I just can't think of a vegetable I enjoy more than those, even though there's not a lot of food in one. Yeah. Um, but they are just so fabulous that I do do it, but I hate decapitating them. It's really, really sad. But, uh, yeah, so we've got a big bed of those, and, and I love them. And uh, I see them as an indulgence vegetable. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, well, especially I can't really fit them at my place because they just take up way too much space. But as you said, the small reward. Yeah, that's right, exactly. And then the plant doesn't look as good once you've taken its head off. Um, But there is something about freshly picked artichokes that you take straight into the kitchen 
boil them, drizzle them with oil or butter, and sit there and have it running down your arms as you, um, you know, antisocially eat your uh, artichokes. Uh, they are just incredible. So I love them. So, yeah, I grow them all the time. Uh, now, we have got a, another call come in from Janine. Uh, she has an eight-year-old potted kumquat, not looking well. Uh, the fruit is wrinkled and empty of flesh, leaves drooping in yellow. Any suggestions? Doesn't sound impressed with life, does it? No. So if it's eight years old and it's been that whole time in the same pot, I'd say it definitely needs a repot and a refresh with potting mix. With yep. um, It might need to go up one pot size as well. Mm-hmm. Um, don't go too big or you'll completely freak the poor thing out. Mm-hmm. Um, and those yellowing, curling leaves and things, all are signs that it's really struggling with nutrients. So go for a really complete fertiliser, something for citrus plants. Um, and nurture it on its way back to health. Um, it wouldn't be a bad thing to trim off as many of those miserable-looking leaves as you possibly mm. can. Clean out the um, fruit? The fruit, again, I'd look, if it's shriveled and miserable-looking, I'd take my chances and just take it off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cut your losses, get the plant back to health. Um, when you actually do repot it or refresh the potting mix if you can't repot it, um, yeah, give it a good, like, you know, doses of seaweed and things for a bit of nurturing um, before you whack it with some decent citrus fertiliser. Yeah. Well, that sounds reasonable. Yes, it sounds to me like the poor thing is is struggling in lots of different yeah. ways. They're uh, hungry. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So I hope, Janine, that that gives you um, the impetus to get out this weekend, possibly, and give your citrus tree a new start in life, which would be good. Um uh, uh, somebody has, uh, Ern has, uh, no, EM, somebody has texted in to say great show and, uh, they're enjoying listening. So that's nice. Um, and Paul from Woodend has aphid on his Japanese maple, um, and Japanese maples are prone to aphid early in the season. Uh, some years I know. How about you at uh, Cloud Hill, Jeremy, do you get much aphid attack on your maples? I'm, at this time of the year, I'm checking every two or three days. Yeah. We, we have a big collection of maples, courtesy of the uh, the big weepers that we have. We, we have about uh, 20 different uh, weeping maples and then quite a few others. Um, and there are certain varieties that really attract maple, uh, attract aphids, I should say, that um, generally varieties which are slow to leaf out. So. Yeah. The shishio that I have, which uh, is one of these that leaves out without any chlorophyll, very mm. foolish of it, but uh, it, it looks stunning. It's uh, the, it, the, the leaves open in autumn colour, in effect, they're scarlet. Mm. Um, but uh, that variety is very, very prone to aphid. There's another one called fo- Floating Cloud. Well, at least that's the English translation. And I have that right next to my office in a pot <laughs> because that's the... Uh, the the um, the bell weather of the, of the of the whole group I suppose yeah. in that uh, <laughs> and sure enough I spot is spotting aphids on those on the, on 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 that particular plant just this week. All right. So what would now, you do about your aphids? Um, well, it depends on the tree. If we can get away with just um, knocking the aphids off with a jet of water, I, yeah. I, that's what we do. Ah, oh, yes. Um, sometimes we do have to spray, and uh, it, I must say this year is not too bad. But but it, um, a bad aphid year is a cool, wet spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
a bit of sunshine, the trees leaf out, and as soon as they leaf out properly, it's not a problem. Yeah. Uh, so it's only a problem as they're leafing out. Yeah. And uh, I have to say, I can remember way, way back when I was a young horticulturalist in our old family nursery, we had a year where there was aphids on everything, even tree fern croziers had aphids all over them. And I was just getting ready to get the toxic chemicals out. Um, and uh, I was just waiting for the appropriate day where I was going to have a calm day and, and not rain and all that sort of stuff to go out and spray. And we just didn't get that weather. Uh, and I had the biggest influx of ladybirds and uh, other aphid-eating critters that came in. And within about a week or two, I couldn't find an aphid anywhere. Um, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and, and you only just have to spend a little bit of time in the garden and uh, watch uh, what the silver eyes are up to. Yeah. Mm. I mean, they're absolutely incredible. You get a flock of silver eyes, yeah. <clears throat> 50 or so. And each bird is taking five or six aphids per second. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> they can clean up a tree in two minutes. Yep. And uh, the more you spray, the uh, the more damage you're doing to the uh, all the beasties um, that are after the aphids. Yeah. So we try not to spray. Yeah. Yep. Well, I do too. I've I've come to the, the conclusion that it's not a good idea to spray if you can if you can manage to live with it for a while. It often sorts itself out. Absolutely. Um, so um, yeah. So why would you do it if unless you absolutely had to? And it might deform the growth a wee bit, but because it doesn't go right through the season like aphids can on rose bushes, uh, it doesn't seem to be a long term issue. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I find. All right. Now, I've got a couple of other calls coming in, and I, it's been suggested that I should mention for those who've been late to get up this morning because of uh, forgetting that it was going to be the beginning of Daylight Saving, uh, we should mention Open Gardens Victoria's online workshop again for anybody who wants to get involved in learning about uh, bush foods for beginners. It's on Wednesday the 13th of October, so it's not far off. It's 7.30 to 8.30 in the evening. It is going to be run by Karen Sutherland from Edible Eden Designs. Uh, it's $30 um, and it's about growing bush tucker in the Melbourne area. Uh, and I'm sure if you go on to Open Gardens Victoria's website, you'll be able to find the link to go in and book to be part of that session. I'm sure you'll find it really, really interesting. Um, now, I've got another call come in. This one might be for you, Jeremy. Thinking of getting a Mount Fuji cherry for a small west-facing backyard. Um is that a good idea or any other suggestions? <laughs> well, Fuji is a glorious thing, but it's a fairly big cherry. Yeah, it is. And it heads it? off sideways, so it takes up quite a bit of room. In fact, therein is an interesting topic of conversation because people always ask me how tall something grows, but very rarely ask me how wide something grows. <laughs> And I think this is really an interesting topic because people think about height as being the issue, which it often isn't. I mean, something could grow incredibly tall but still not take up much garden space. Uh, but if you plant a weeping elm, it's going to take over a whole suburban block in time uh, but only grow, you know, a few metres tall. So width is really important. And yeah. you're right, the flowering Mount Fuji cherry is a broad spreader, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have a superb planting of Mount Fuji in a garden just down the uh, the road from us, and it's on the high side of the road, and it uh, it's quite a big property, there's several acres, and they've planted a row of these trees in such a way that they're growing out over the road. Oh, goodness. Uh, and they're very high, so you're looking up uh, six, eight metres yeah. and into the canopy. And, of course, the flowers hang below the leaves. 
<laughs> and it's that for the uh, the, the uh, I know the yeah I think you know the owner the the uh, Angela Kayser actually planted that. Ah so, yes yes I yes, yes, so yes I know, know who yes yeah, I know who you're talking about. A very keen horticulturalist. Yeah, and uh, she was thinking of the people driving along the road when she planted these trees. That was very decent of her. Yeah, I, I think that's a civic-minded thought. Yes, yeah. yes. I think and and they're, they're superbly planted. They are, they're in exactly the right spot. Mm. Um, so that's what I'm wondering, a small yard. Yes, I'm, it's I'm, only... I'm, yeah. I'm not absolutely sure I'd use them. Yeah, well, I'm not sure I would either, although if you did want the whole backyard taken over by a shade tree, it might work. Um, yeah. uh, I, I have actually seen a... Uh, to illustrate Mount Fuji, I've seen a, a garden, a photograph of a garden in America at least, of um, um, half a dozen Mount Fuji's planted in two rows of three each over some paving. Oh, yes. a picnic table set up underneath and then surrounded by grass. Now, for something like that, <laughs> that uh, for, for that purpose, if you wanted a shady arbour over a picnic table, Mount Fuji is exactly the tree you need. Yeah, yeah, so it could work that way if you don't mind taking up the whole yard. Yeah, um, but, it but sideways. Lot, yeah, there are a lot of other smaller trees potentially that might actually yeah. do the job for, for him. I would have a talk to a local nursery and see what they've got because there's no point in us telling you you should have this or that or the other thing if you can't actually source the tree anyway. So it's a good idea to have a talk. And there's no one perfect tree, is there? There's masses of different things you could be planting. So, a lot uh, of choice. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of choice. And, uh, in fact, I often... Um, so what I call paralyzed customers with choice. <laughs> you know, they come in for a suggestion about a tree and, and by the time I've shown them the fifth or sixth tree that could do the job beautifully, uh, you can see their eyes glazing over and they're going, right. oh, I can't deal with this. Uh, so, yeah, paralyzation by, cho by choice is, is quite a common occurrence. So, yes, you need a little bit of uh, inspiration from somebody and if they just give you one or two suggestions of something interesting that will do the job, it's probably all you need, really to say the least. Um, and um, it did come in saying that width is desired. I just noticed that's come in. So they did want something spready. So, in fact, the Mount Fuji could work or any of the other spreading cherries, for that matter. I mean, a Yukon or one of the others that yeah. sort of have a slightly spready form could, in fact, be ideal for it. But you wouldn't want one of those upright skinny ones. No. I, uh, look, Mount Fuji has a lot going for it. It's, it's, it's pretty... Pest resistant. It's it's uh, uh, it has a beautiful growth habit. It's it's a, a good, strong, sturdy cherry, and yeah. some of them are not. Yeah. Um. So uh, it's it's definitely one of my top half dozen. Yeah. And it should grow fine <laughs> um, at Mitcham, shouldn't it? It would be a good climate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They don't mind clay soil. Uh, look, it, it's it just depends on the site, and uh, and you, you, but you'd have to keep in mind it'll go up. Uh, what, uh, what, four or five metres, but it might spread out to uh, seven or eight. Yeah, yeah. But it would make a great place to put your picnic table. So, Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. yes, you could certainly choose a, a worse tree than that. So it might be better just to stick with your first inc inclination and go down that path, perhaps. That's a lovely thing. Yeah, lovely tree. Um, all right, we've only got about five minutes to go. Um, 
Um, mm. I'm just trying to think if there's any announcements I should redo apart from the Open Gardens one, which I've done. Uh, oh, yes, the uh, Australian Studying Abroad Tour of the Macedon Ranges, if people want to book on that. That's on the 26th and 29th of April, so it's next autumn. Uh, so get in touch with Australians studying abroad. Um, you could ring them uh, on 0398226899, uh, and I'll be leading that tour. Remember the Yarra Valley plant, uh, Rare Plant Fair? It's had a date change, uh, so Larkmans are going to run that on the 20th and 21st of November, all things being equal. So let's hope that that goes ahead because we've lost a few plant fairs over the last month or two, unfortunately. Oh, and, I know. It's not fair. Well, it isn't fair. I mean, it's such a wonderful way for gardeners to get together, to go out and see plants from growers and chat to the growers and catch up with each other uh, and, and do some retail therapy. Exactly. And we're outdoors. Come on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say through the last lockdown, I was a bit miffy about the whole thing because I had to lock down the nursery. I could, I was behind the gate doing things. So I was still getting yeah. work done, uh, but I couldn't see a customer, but I could walk out the front to the general store and buy my lunch. <laughs> and um, I still can't quite get my head around the, the fairness of that. But anyhow. Stephen, can I just say uh, with Cloud Hill, we, we do have this problem in the Dandongs at the moment and we have been open. The garden has been open for people to visit within people living within 15 kilometres. Um, and at the moment, uh, I think we uh, will have to stay closed for the next week, next two weeks, perhaps. We're, we're trying to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> we'll know a lot more in the next day or two. Um, and uh, the hope is we all come out of this over the next, uh, three, four, five weeks, and and then we'll make announcements at that point, and we'll be <laughs> letting the world know that uh, we're heading back into the sunlit yeah, uplands. Good. All right. Well, we'd better get ready to go. I'm going to need to put the theme music on in a moment. So, <laughs> Chloe Thompson uh, from Been There, Dug That. Uh, Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Uh, thank you to Off Air. Thank you to AB, who's who's stoically stayed with me all morning and is going to help me close off the program. And we'll catch up with you next week. So goodbye all. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.